welcome to episode 74 of the People's History of Ideas podcast. Last episode, we discussed some small peasant uprisings in the Yangtze Delta region as a way of illustrating what many of the hundreds of small armed uprisings attempted by the Communist Party at the end of the 1920s looked like. This episode, we're returning to consider one of the more significant armed uprisings, what became known as the Guangzhou Commune of December 11th to 13th, 1927. The decision to attempt an armed insurrection in Guangzhou was taken by the party center in Shanghai on November 17th in response to unfolding events in Guangzhou. You might recall from previous episodes that Wang Jingwei, the leader of the left-wing faction of the Guomindang, had left Wuhan after the collapse of his regime there to Guangzhou, which was held by a Guomindang, Guomindang general named Li Jishen. Wang had hoped to build up a new left-wing regime in Guangzhou, but as it turned out, didn't have a lot of luck with that. In November, Li Jishen and Wang Jingwei left their base in Guangzhou for talks with other Guomindang leaders in Shanghai about reunifying that party. In their absence, in an act totally contrary to the spirit of party reunification, another Guomindang militarist, Zhang Fakui, launched a coup in Guangzhou and took control of the city for himself on November 17th. Zhang Fakui, you might recall, had been the Guomindang general whose forces mutinied in the Nanchang uprising. Zhang had pursued the Nanchang rebels back into Guangdong province, which was his home province. Seeing the absence of Wang Jingwei and Li Jishen in Shanghai as an opportunity to take power for himself, he seized Guangzhou. But although he seized the city pretty handily, there was continuing fighting between his troops and those of Li Jishen. Zhang Tailei, the secretary of the Guangdong Provincial Committee, was still in Shanghai where the Politburo meeting that we discussed in episode 72 had taken place a few days earlier. Zhang Tailei and the central communist leadership discussed the events in Guangdong as news unfolded of Zhang Fakui's coup and decided that an opportunity had arisen for an armed uprising in Guangzhou. As a result of this meeting, a directive was made out from the party center to the Guangdong Provincial Committee to utilize the opportunity of civil war to expand the uprisings in the cities and villages, to agitate among the soldiers, to stage mutinies and revolts, and in the time of war, swiftly to link such uprisings into a general uprising for the establishment of Soviets. As we can see from this directive, the idea was for rural uprisings to take place as well, but the uprising in Guangzhou was the centerpiece of the insurrection. Uh, this reflected the Communist Party's strategic orientation at the time, which we discussed at, length, at some length last episode, where cities were seen as anchors, as leading centers for uprisings in the countryside. Now, Guangzhou had until recently been the real hotbed of the Chinese Revolution. If you go back, uh, if you go to, to earlier episodes of this podcast, uh, especially around episodes 30 to 42, we spent a lot of time talking about events going on in Guangdong. But as the center of the revolution moved on to other parts of the country along with the northern expedition, we haven't really talked much about Guangzhou. But to understand the Guangzhou uprising, 
we need to understand what had been happening. Because from the perspective of someone participating in the revolutionary movement in Guangzhou, uh, like many of the workers who had gone on strike during the May 30th movement and then stayed in Guangzhou rather than marching out with the northern expedition, there's continuity between the earlier revolutionary events in the city and the uprising at the end of 1927. So let's take a step back and look at Guangzhou's recent history. The labor movement in Guangzhou dates back to the beginnings of the 1900s, when anarchists and workers associated with the Revolutionary Alliance, the forerunner of the Guomindang, founded the city's first labor organizations. These earliest unions, though, were usually guild unions, with employers often joining the union along with their employees. So they were more about protecting industry standards than about fighting for the interests of the workers in an industry. Uh, the first major modern union was the Siemens Union, whose early 1922 strike helped to launch the nationwide labor movement. And after the Guomindang took control of Guangzhou, unions received a lot of support and protection from the government. But there were some serious structural obstacles to revolutionary union organization, despite a sympathetic city government from 1924 to 1927. Here's how Arif Dirlik describes the situation. While the communists had some success in promoting modern labor unions that would break with the guild tradition, their success was highly qualified, limited as it was by the organizational practices among laborers. The Siemens Union, the most radical among early labor organizations, provides an example. Seamen, like most laborers in Guangzhou, were, recru were recruited through a labor boss system. So that recruitment on the basis of kinship or district shaped the division of labor among workers. When workers began to organize themselves against the labor bosses, their very organizations followed the same patterns. In his memoirs, Liu Da Chao, an early member of the Siemens Union, recalls that, that the various mutual aid societies that seamen formed to help one another out followed district or ethnic, such as Hakka, lines. Hence, localism was very strong among the laborers who, being from different parts of Guangdong, shared neither a common language nor common customs. This made it easier for employers to play workers one against the other. Unionization sought to overcome this challenge, but was only partially successful. At the most basic level, language remained a fundamental problem of the union and revolutionary movements, where even laborers in the same union were frequently incapable of communicating with one another. District and clan affiliations also led to a proliferation of unions, where workers in the same occupation established more than one union. A communist report as late as 1926 complained of the fragmentation of unions in Guangzhou, where every street had three union offices. Moreover, rather than establishing an autonomous position of their own and promoting workers' interests, labor unions in Guangzhou were embroiled in local politics, which got them involved in the political factionalism that was rife in the city, even during the period of Guomindang dominance. End quote. The May 30th movement gave a huge boost to the workers' movement in Guangzhou. With tens of thousands of strikers in the city who had left Hong Kong as part of the general strike directed against British and Japanese capital. In November 1925, many of these workers were organized into workers' armed pickets 
led by the communists and totally independent of the local peacekeeping authorities. You might recall from earlier episodes that the Guangzhou Hong Kong Strike Committee had its own jails and carried out its own justice against people accused of violating the boycott of British goods. With its own armed force, justice system, and internal hierarchy, the Strike Committee constituted something of an allied dual power next to the formal city government of the Guomindang. To many observers, both friendly and opposed, Guangzhou appeared to be a city run by the labor movement. British diplomatic reports from late 1926 referred to the Canton Soviet, and an article in the American newspaper The Daily Worker described Red Canton as the center of the global movement for the liberation of colonies. And um, while I'm reluctant to interrupt the narrative, I know that a lot of listeners have questions about this name that gets used for Guangzhou a lot, which is Canton. And so I should just take a second and uh, clear that up. Um, The city of Guangzhou was long known in the international literature as Canton. The origin of this is when the Portuguese first arrived in the city back in 1513. When the Portuguese heard the name of the region where they had landed, Guangdong, they corrupted the local pronunciation of it into Cantayo. Uh, remember, when I say Guangdong, I am badly saying the Mandarin pronunciation of the name, which is different than the local pronunciation. And they applied uh, this this pronunciation of Guangdong, Cantayo, to the city of Guangzhou. Um, so they applied the regional name, uh, corrupted it, and then they took the regional name, corrupted it, and then applied it to this one city. Uh, Cantayo in Portuguese uh, becomes Canton in English, which is even further from the original. Gradually, um, I want to say over the 1970s and 1980s, the English language popular press began using the proper Chinese name for the city instead of the old corruption. Uh, I think that some people interpret this as the city's name having been changed. Um, for example, during a job talk that I once gave, I was talking about the Pacific world in the 16th and 17th centuries, and uh, I was interrupted and corrected by a member of the hiring committee who told me that Guangzhou was called Canton back then. Um, but actually, it's just that English language publications began using the correct name for the city in the past few decades. Anyways, that's why you see Guangzhou named as Canton in these historical sources. Okay, back to talking about the labor movement in Guangzhou. So, while it appeared to many observers that the revolutionary unions controlled the city, in reality, things were quite a bit more complex. By the time the northern expedition took off in mid-1926, the communists claimed to lead over 200,000 workers in an organization called the Guangzhou Workers' Delegates Conference, which had 120 unions affiliated with it. But there were two other major union groupings, the Guangzhou General Labor Union and the Mechanics Union. Uh, The Mechanics Union in particular was associated with the Guomindang right and was hostile to the communists. Uh, it, it, It had organized an armed branch, which it called the Physical Education Corps, which was dedicated to attacking the communists. Uh, You might remember back in episode 40, we discussed how different union factions were killing each other in Guangzhou. Uh, Well, these were the guys who were fighting the communists. And things became much more difficult for the communists after the northern expedition left Guangdong, and the United Front city government lost much of the power that it, it had had because Guangzhou was the center of the national movement. 
with all the top leaders leaving the city, the local government lost the power that it had formerly been able to wield over local elites. The communists actually had only 300 cadres leading the 200,000 workers who formed the Guangzhou Workers' Delegates Conference. When the local government backed the unions, it had made for favorable conditions and it was possible for 300 cadres to lead such a large force. But after the departure of the Northern Expedition, things, things became more difficult for the local revolutionary unionists. When uh, the strike and boycott against the British was finally ended on October 10th, 1926, uh, by a Guomindang leadership that was anxious to put that struggle behind it so that there could be an undivided focus on the Northern Expedition, workers who had been lodged and fed at government expense in reception centers, uh, some for over a year, were given $100 and told to go and get a job. And while local employers were asked to give hiring preference to former strikers, uh, that request was really just an empty gesture. And not surprisingly, militant workers found it difficult to get work with the end of the state-supported strike. Uh, many of these workers dispersed back uh, to home villages in the countryside. And in, October, in April uh, 1927, uh, Guomindang government support for the labor movement fully transitioned into government suppression of the labor movement. On April 15th, just three days after the suppression of the communists in Shanghai that we discussed in episode 49, General Li Jishen returned to Guangdong after participating in the massacre in Shanghai and began carrying out a similar purge of communists and progressive workers. On April 15th itself, two to 3,000 radicals were arrested and about 200 executed including Liu Ersong, the chairman of the Workers' Delegates Conference. Here's a British government report on the repression made in late April. To deal with the dangerous communist elements in accordance with urgent instructions from the Guomindang Central Control Committee received at General Military Headquarters here, General Li Chai-sung, as acting commander-in-chief, after calling a conference with his com commandants, enforced emergency martial law in Canton at midnight of 14th instant, and large companies of troops were immediately sent out in the early morning of Good Friday the 15th in different directions to raid the various Red Labor Organization headquarters. The number of Red Party workmen arrested and detained was about 2,000, including men and women. About 40 students, boys and girls, were arrested from Guangdong University. The anti-red campaign in Canton on Good Friday was much applauded by merchants and the general public, but certain classes are still not satisfied with the action taken here. That the action taken here was not so thorough as that taken in Chanteau on the 17th, where all labor unions were sealed and closed. And the repression continued for more than a month afterwards. Here's one eyewitness account from May 29th, from an American who was teaching at Canton Christian College, the forerunner of today's Lingnan University. Another day, when I was tutoring the students in Canton, I was lying down and the boys came running. Oh, Mr. Swisher, come and look at the communists. I ran over to the window, and down there in the street was a bunch of about a hundred men, each with his hands tied behind his back and with a stout rope. They were crowded in a tight mass, and a long, heavy rope tied clear around the group, just like a cowpuncher would lasso a bunch of steers. 
They passed right in front of the hotel and toward the bund. The bund. They were probably being moved from one jail to another. This clearing out of communists has gone on for about a month now. Several thousand have been arrested, and it is believed that about two thousand have been ex- executed. These executions are at night, and no public report is made of them. They are simply taken to the East Parade Ground and shot. End quote. In addition to the physical repression of the communists, the unions were reorganized so that they were put under the control of the Guomindang unionists who had been fighting with the communists. During the months between April 15th and the Guangzhou uprising in December, the revolutionary workers took a number of measures to fight back. They formed armed groups to fight the white terror with red terror, and some historians have described the struggle which ensued as a civil war within the labor movement as most of the fighting was waged between the radical workers and the workers of the Guomindang right. Uh, Periodic strikes and demonstrations were called as well. At least 20,000 workers came out on November 1st to protest Wang Jingwei, and a similar number came to a demonstration marking the 10th anniversary of the Russian Revolution on November 7th. After Zhang Fakui's coup on November 17th, Zhang made further moves against the radical workers. Dormitories and cafeterias which the workers had continued occupying since the Hong Kong strike were ordered evacuated. In response, the workers burned down some of the buildings as they were leaving, uh, giving them no choice but to escape Guangzhou for their home villages in the countryside in order to escape repression. So, by the time that the party center in Shanghai had called for an uprising in Guangzhou, the situation of a year earlier when Guangzhou had been perceived widely as a central place of the world revolutionary movement had changed dramatically. Significant numbers of workers could still be counted on to come out for revolutionary protests. After all, 20,000 people marching under heavily repressive conditions in support of the Soviet Union is no small number. But the movement had suffered months of brutal repression and was continually hemorrhaging activists to arrest, demoralization, and escape to hometowns in the countryside. In retrospect, this situation where the communists had suffered seven months of uninterrupted defeats would be taken into account in summing up that the uprising could not have prevailed against the objective conditions. The enemy simply had too many forces at their disposal, and the communist forces had been too greatly weakened by the months of repression. But, On the eve of the uprising, there were reasons that the communists felt they had to be optimistic. On November 7th, the Hailu Feng Soviet had been proclaimed under the direction of Peng Pai in the countryside to the east of Guangzhou, with six counties under communist control. And the continuing fighting between Zhang Fakui and Li Jishen seemed to provide an opening for defeating the militarily more powerful reactionaries. And on November 28th, When party leaders in Guangzhou first met with leaders of the revolutionary workers to announce the uprising, the workers responded enthusiastically, saying that the time has come for revenge, and that Guangzhou has been red for so long, what is there to wait for? Those workers who remained as militant activists in Guangzhou were a hard core, and they were eager to find a way to get back at the Guomindang. As one worker later recalled when he explained the readiness of the remaining revolutionary workers of Guangzhou to rebel despite very long odds, quote, because they hated the Guomindang's betrayal, 
hated all the killings of communists and masses by the Guomindang. The psychology of revenge overshadowed everything else. End quote. The mingling of hope with uncertainty is captured by Zhang Tailei's last communication to the party center, dated December 8th, three days before the uprising. Our strength is not great, but we believe that once the uprising is launched, it will for sure receive the help of the masses. A common people's revolutionary movement, movement like this will for sure influence the enemy's forces and cause their dissolution. If we can hold on for two weeks, we will for sure receive concrete help internationally. Our leadership ability is weak. I hope Elder Brother Enlai can join us right away. Uh, end quote. Uh, referring there, of course, to Joe Enlai. All right. Next episode, we'll look at the uprising itself. See you then.